0: A very happy new year, and welcome back to episode 99 of Breakout Culture. This is our third year. Feels like a life sentence. <laughs> I'm Ed Vasey, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine.
1: And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. And we thought, as it was January and we're all in that strange time of making resolutions, and in my case, already failing to carry them out, we'd invite our listeners to enjoy a pre-therapy session, not just with one well-known therapist, but with three.
0: I've just realised comparing the third year of this podcast to a life sentence sounded like it was being incredibly rude to our guests. But actually, I was just trying to be be incredibly rude to Charlotte, (laughs) which is obviously a theme of this uh, podcast. So, Charlotte, you're the one who could be offended, but our guests are not. No, we'll just
2: analyse it as therapists (laughs)
0: instead. And they're already gate-crashing my introduction. But anyway, (laughs) uh, our guests are Julia Samuel. Uh, She's been on our podcast before. She's a highly acclaimed psychotherapist and grief counsellor. She's the author of several books, including This Too Shall Pass, Grief Works, and Every Family Has a Story. She's the host of an enormously popular podcast, Grief Works. But today we're going to be talking about her newer podcast, which launched in late September, Therapy Works, and she hosts it with her two daughters, who are also, by an incredible coincidence, psychotherapists as well. Emily and Sophie. We're delighted they're all here with us today. You're gonna have to say your names every time you speak because you all sound so similar. Julia, Emily and Sophie.
3: Hi, I'm
0: Julia.
2: Hi, I'm Emily. I'm Sophie.
4: Well, a very warm welcome to you
1: all. And we really appreciate you coming on. It's quite a miracle that you can all find time to get together on your own podcast, let alone someone else's. And we're thrilled to have you. Now, can you start by telling our listeners whose idea this was and then we'll get on to hearing how it works
2: it was definitely mom's idea mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um says emily. Think, says emily yes <laughs> but sophie and i were i think a bit apprehensive actually yeah. <laughs> excited and apprehensive for multiple Reasons, partly just I think doing any kind of podcast, but also like working with your mom <laughs> isn't always like the top of your to do list. So I think we were a bit apprehensive for a few reasons, but have absolutely really loved it. So it's been fantastic, actually. I would say
0: they are both Emily and Sophie, are both psychotherapists, but specialize in different areas. So, Emily, you work as a child psychotherapist, yes. And Sophie, you work as a prison psychotherapist?
4: I'm an adult psychotherapist. I at a time I did work in prisons as a sort of intensive one-to-one worker, but I don't I don't anymore.
0: How does it feel when you come together on one podcast with these different disciplines?
3: I, I think the great thing about that is although we are family, we have very different perspectives and experiences as therapists and different trainings. So I've been really interested and learned a lot from Emily and Sophie, and and that has been a sort of an expansion of our relationship. Really
1: talking about your very different disciplines, there was one in particular I thought was really interesting, where that came about, where you interviewed the the young uh diarist. You'll have to remind me of her name from Ukraine. Yeva, Yeva. Uh, only twelve years old, and an unbelievably sort of extraordinarily mature uh, refugee from Ukraine. And you were talking to Julia about about experiencing the war. And then when you, Emily and Sophie, when you came on afterwards, you both felt your mum had been a bit, unconfident is that right or just just talk us through that podcast because it's
2: really interesting yes I think she felt like she'd been unconfident or like she felt like she'd done badly and I think Sophie and I just because we know her so well I don't I don't think we thought she'd done badly no I could tell that she felt awkward like she felt a bit disjointed or a bit uncomfortable and you know who knows that she might have just been having a rubbish day, but I think that something about her being a twelve-year-old, yeah, I guess it's less your wheelhouse.
4: I mean, her book's called "You Don't Know What It's Like," or I, can't, I should remember yeah. the full title, but but I think there's something about war that is very hard, is also harder to relate to from this distance. That I think was part of the conversation and part of her experience that was kind of in a way present. So coming to Ireland and having being surrounded by people who didn't really know what it was like to be, what she'd just been through, and, and that's true of Mum as well. So I think that was, I don't know. What do you think, Mum, since it was you?
3: I think both those things are true, that I, you know, 12-year-olds, I work with whole families, but not 12-year-olds, so M would have been, I think, much better to interview her. I think you'd have kind of aligned with her better. I think there's something about trauma, particularly from the voice of a 12-year-old, and war and all the things that, you know, What seeing her home being blown up, is quite hard to hear and maybe unconsciously I'd kind of cut off a bit and so when I listened to it I felt I sounded sort of clunky and not as open as I normally am.
1: It's so interesting hearing you say that and and you know listeners who can't see you while Emily was talking about you perhaps not not being at your
3: absolute best you were nodding away it sounded brilliant to me. I've been a therapist for like 33 years so I know when I kind of feel that I'm working at my kind of optimum version of myself and I knew then that I wasn't.
0: The podcast works, you have a patient as it were and Julia you conduct the session and then your daughters come in and do a sort of post-mortem as it were critique.
3: Some of it is a post-mortem, more of it is translating the bigger themes and understanding so that you can take the micro of the conversation and make it macro so that people can understand for themselves the topics or the theories or the experiences that came up so it's kind of translating the personal into a kind of universal understanding about how we operate in the world or how we are in relationship or how we can block ourselves, that kind of thing.
2: I think it's expanding the conversation as well as us kind of sometimes just chatting. It's a mix. Mm.
0: <laughs> and the patient is not present when you do the wash up.
2: No. And, and also, we're not um, post mortem on them.
0: No. <laughs> it's yeah. not like
2: oh, not analysing <laughs> them
4: or their story or their behaviour. It's
3: very you know. specifically not doing that.
0: Yeah. Well, I see what you mean. So, for example, you've had Helena Bottom Carter on talking about her divorce. So you would then, as it were, take from that conversation themes about how one approaches divorce how one copes with divorce and that kind of thing exactly and what was Helena Bonham Carter like I mean it's quite a big deal to ask somebody that that high profile to come on and talk about something so personal
2: she was very funny she was very open her and mum had a weird flirtation at the end which was a tiny bit awkward (laughs) for (laughs) me to listen to that's quite also very funny (laughs) Uh, they both told each other they were sexy (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, it was also very moving and personal the things that she shared but I I think mum you you interviewed her so yeah I I loved
3: the conversation Uh, and listening to it I was cringing at the kind of my over excitement but also she was I think the kind of public profile of her is is so different to the real her you know that she is incredibly wise and kind of Astute and centered, and clever, and a, and a true original, which is quite rare these days. You know, she was by no means putting on a show; she was really her real self. And I think there's something very powerful about hearing that.
1: I mean, I think what I'm really intrigued by is, as podcasters ourselves, and knowing that you know what a rigmarole it is to go and get people to come on it. I mean, we're asking people to come on and promote their their works you know but you I mean what is in it for them how do you persuade somebody to come on and not just share with you but knowing that hundreds of listeners are going to be
2: tuning in hopefully more than hundreds ultimately (laughs) (laughs) I I
3: actually am not sure why people accept I mean Helena did accept I, I, I mean she knew my books and and my work so I think she sort of Felt she had a relationship with me already. And Alexander Campbell, amazingly accepted. Um, and he certainly doesn't need to promote anything since he's number one, one, two, three and four and five in all podcasts in the UK. <laughs> so he's just generous. I think people are generous in wanting to share their understanding of themselves to help others to understand themselves.
1: Mm. I, th- I thought he was fabulous, by the way. I thought that's, that's one I listened to. And you were all... Quite enthused, quite energised and enthused at the end of that, I felt.
2: Very much so. Yeah, definitely. I think he was interesting to listen to and also is very, you know, he speaks with such definitive certainness that I think that inevitably creates a, a big reaction when you're listening.
4: Yeah, and he's
1: incredibly open,
4: isn't he, about everything. Mm, He's very courageous, isn't he, talking about the darker parts of his life as well as successes. And I think it's very helpful, isn't it, when we sort of slightly burst the bubble of success and fame. Yeah, you know, I think it's very interesting in the podcast having a mixture of. I think there's pros of having both well-known and and normal people part of the podcast because it, I think, for the well-known people, it slightly bursts the sort of everything's perfect. Their life is easy image. And for those who are like you and me, just kind of living their lives, it kind of is it's very relatable to their experiences. So I think it's quite nice having a mixture of both.
1: Yeah, I thought the other one who was very good on that was
0: Rio Ferdinand's wife. She talked about being a step-parent and her miscarriage.
2: It's very moving. Yes, yeah, she was very, very open and vulnerable in a way that I think yes. is very relatable and brave. And I think, you know, I guess people do it for different reasons, but I think, like... Mum and soap were saying, I think she was doing it for other people who have maybe been through this to sort of say, you're not alone. This is what my experience was like. Maybe you can connect to that. And, you know, she has her own podcast. And I think she's sort of trying to build this community where people don't feel alone in their difficult experiences.
1: I mean, I think what was interesting about that one exactly as you're saying that it's very easy to look at somebody who appears to have it all. And she's clearly grappled with so many. Problems, you know, just as a stepmother, as someone who's had a miscarriage, as somebody being perceived as having it all so perfect, and it's and it's not, and it's a lot of work, and then she gets trolled, and everyone's watching her every move. It's it's not ideal, and
2: lives are messy, (laughs) even famous people's lives. So some of them, they do have
3: something that they want to promote, and so they're kind of more likely to say yes. And I think they're really interesting and have a kind of psychological perspective, like E Grant. You know, talking about grief. Obviously, I, I'm known for grief. So that is a natural fit. And he's got his book, A Pocket Full of Happiness, um, about the, the death of his wife, Joan. So there's a kind of alignment that really works there. And I'm looking for diversity for different types of ways of how we live in the world so that people can have an understanding of their internal worlds by listening to other people talking about their internal worlds. And I think there's a lot that is misunderstood. I mean, I think one of the big aims of the podcast is there's a lot of awareness around mental health, but there isn't a lot of actual knowledge and actual understanding. And so I think hearing people... Talking about their experiences and then us kind of translating them does give people more grounded information that they can make informed understandings of themselves and, and how to help themselves and support themselves. I mean, one of my, one of my big things is that people kind of, conf- they'd be sort of self-diagnosed that if they're worried, they say they have an anxiety disorder or, you know, mm-hmm. so that people can conflate a feeling with a, a psychological disorder. And I think that's very unhelpful.
0: Is there um, a difference in peop- how people cope with difficult situations when it comes to agency? So, if you think about someone like Helena Bonham Carter getting divorced, this is in effect an act, an active act between a couple who decide that they no longer want to be together. And you compare it to somebody like Claire Macbeth, whose child is severely injured in a, an accident. And becomes a paraplegic and this has happened to her obviously not something she sought out in any shape or form how do people cope That, that those are two very different circumstances but i can imagine that what makes it so difficult for somebody like Claire McBeth is that this happened to her rather than it being something that although painful was something that ultimately she thought would be a good thing to do
2: yeah i mean i think there are levels of trauma in terms of your experience and how much it turns your world upside down. But I also think that it's it's not always helpful to have a sort of hierarchy of this experience was worse than that experience, because every individual's experience of whatever has happened to them varies. So you might be somebody who, like, divorce is difficult for anybody, but where you are on that spectrum of how difficult going to be hugely varied and if you kind of go into it thinking well this was sort of my decision therefore I shouldn't feel bad then that is not a very helpful way of kind of taking care of yourself so I think a lot of what our message is is about whatever you feel that's okay there's not there's not a wrong feeling there's not a should or a shouldn't feel But there are things that you can do with those feelings that might
4: help. And I think claiming a sense of agency and whatever has happened to you is always a helpful psychological position. Working out the things that you can change and the things you can't and the things that you can do, I think, can feel very um, empowering. And learning to let go of the things that you can't change can be a great relief. And that can be true of. Whatever the factors are that whatever the difficult experience you're you're going through
3: so for instance, Claire Macbeth, when her son, who was thirteen was was hit by that car and was you know paraplegic and and would never speak again, she spent years processing that of the trauma of it, the loss of it, the fury, the resentment, looking at other children who were the same age as her son and kind of finding it almost unbearable to be with them. But when she recognised that she could both be angry, that she could ask for support and that she had to tell people what she needed because they couldn't guess. And also when she could surrender that she had no control, that in some way then freed her to come to terms with the loss of him as he was and enjoy more... Fr- I mean, she all, she never stopped loving him, but she could kind of navigate and embrace the new relationship she had with him more fully once she surrendered, that she, she had no control. And I think that is a very powerful, the sort of paradox, that is a very powerful understanding.
1: How many years after the accident did you um, speak to her? Uh,
3: she, it happened in 2003, didn't it then? Yeah, I think it was about 20 years, yeah.
1: Gosh, so she'd been struggling for all that. Had, I mean, had she been having psychotherapy during that
3: time? It wasn't through our conversation that she came to that understanding. I think our conversation was, and she enjoyed our conversation, actually, and it was meaningful to her, but she had done the work herself.
0: And you must get amazing feedback from your listeners. I mean, I remember going to see you, Julia, speak at Hale Wine. You know, it was just kind of amazing, people letting talking about their issues in in an audience of 500 people. I mean, (laughs) I can imagine the podcast generates a tsunami of people writing to you.
3: It's been really well received. I'm, you know, I, I'm enormously grateful to people that listen and, and kind of connect with it and hear themselves in it and connect to us.
1: It's amazing how many subjects you've covered. I mean, just looking, if, if I look at the list of who you've had on, you know, you've had somebody dealing with, with telling their very kind of fundamentalist parents that they're gay. You've had somebody who's, you know, is appallingly sexually abused. Now, tell us about that one, because that one was very interesting, because you, you said it was all about the, that, your sense of self getting so shattered.
3: So she was Jess. So she was one of our unheard voices. So we'll turn episodes of people who are known with people who aren't well known. What we call unheard voices. And she had been sexually groomed by her stepfather, and it was only in retrospect that she recognised what was happening to her and her sister that turned her against her mother. And actually, that was one of the episodes where I felt like in the process of talking to me that she had insights and kind of new understandings but what she recognized was that at the moment he started grooming her her sort of blossoming sense of herself as a sexual being as a kind of teenager froze and was shattered because something she knew something had gone wrong in her development and that it it was like being stuck in amber in a way because she had until she could understand what had happened, until she could picture that she had been kind of shattered at that point, until you have that knowledge, you don't have the pathway to then reflect and kind of work through the process so that you can open yourself up again. You know, what you don't know keeps you fixed, and then what self understanding. Opens you up to change and opportunity for growth, basically.
1: And there's another um, one of your other unknowns I thought was really interesting was the one with, with Dave, I think it was called, on toxic masculinity.
4: Yes, he was a man who'd grown up in a very violent, domestically violent upbringing, wasn't he? And um, had a long history of crime and drugs and alcohol, and now himself worked as um, part of a charity called Band of Brothers, which were a drug and alcohol recovery centre. Yeah, he was very moving and very moving about suicide and the sort of ongoing and coming in and out of, of those phases of depression and the sort of profound turning point that he had in prison when he attempted suicide and and then it didn't succeed and he found a number to get help and it was sort of one of those moments that when I think often sometimes in therapy and, and in change generally it's, it's so sometimes it's about timing, about being ready, being ready to make change because we sometimes we fight so hard. <laughs> to not live with what's true, not true with how we feel, not true of what happened in our story, not like something, you know, of what we feel we resist it. And then that's until you really are at a moment where you're kind of ready to allow that to be true or to feel it or to confront it. Then we tend to be quite stuck in patterns. Yeah.
2: I think readiness and also luck that there was somebody there who was Able yes. to listen and able to act and provide the support that he needed, and that doesn't always happen. But who did he call in that? Who,
3: who did he? There write? was a newspaper article written by a woman um, who supported suicide, people who were who were suicidal. In prison, uh, you often
4: get sort of in in prison magazines, as uh-huh. it were. And it was she'd written in that, and then he wrote to her. That's right. And then she responded straight away and he got a letter back.
3: And I think one of the things, you know, that sliding door thing, like Claire Macbeth's son, that terrible bad luck, completely random, out of the blue, devastating, life altering, terrible luck can happen. And also, out of the blue, good luck can happen. And that we don't really have control of either, but we need to kind of find a way of living with, with the outcome of both. Mm. I could, I'd love some good luck. <laughs> <I do. laughs> if, you, if you're Richard E. Grant, he believes he makes his luck. He manifests it and kind of moves towards it, believing in it. And he believes that really influences the luck that he has. It isn't necessarily just out of the blue it's made.
1: I was just going to ask Julia and Emily and Sophie what they think about manifestation which is the the sort of bit of a buzzword isn't it
2: i think that it, it is a very helpful concept for some people to feel like they have some sort of control over what happens in their lives and then for other people i think it's just a bit woo woo annoying like why is you know What? Like, that's ridiculous. But I think there's truth to that. If you believe that positive things will happen, then you're sort of putting positive things out in the world and that can create a positive cycle. And yet, there can also be out of the bolt terrible things that happen that you don't have any control over. So... Mm. It's a very therapist answer in that it was not, not black and white.
4: Yes, I think intentions and attention matters, doesn't it? You know, um, what you pay attention to in your life and what your intentions are in life, I think, can then change the kind of interactions you have or what you, you know. One of the things that's kind of shown to be very helpful is saying gratitudes on a daily or in a weekly basis. And part of what that is is just paying attention to what is good in your life, which then changes how you feel about your life, which then might give you more positive feelings to go and do more stuff, you know. And they're often, you know, if you look at brain scanning of people with depression, one of the things you notice is they pay much more attention to negative data. So there's sort of, I think there's a truth, or I would think of it as there's a truth in sort of intention and, a, and sort of attention can make a difference to the things that happen. But it's not, no one has control.
3: And the, the bit I would add, and I completely agree with, with both of you, is the research shows like for musicians or sportsmen that they can practice in their minds without the instrument without the the ball and that we our brain is habit forming loop loop wanting pathways for looping feedback for feedback loops and so that if you're wanting to change your behavior in response to a particular situation by playing a movie of how you would like to be in your mind and bringing with it your kind of emotion and even your kind of body posture when you, and rehearsing it mentally, then when you go into that situation, your body is primed and more likely to respond to that because you've pictured it already. So, I mean, you can use that for difficult family occasions, you can use it for difficult speeches or kind of presentations, for all sorts of things that if you... say, when people, for instance, I mean, in my world to do with grief, I'm laughing, which is a bit sick, but I suggest that... So going to the funeral, say, I always say go to the church, go to the place in the church where you're going to sit, walk around the church, imagine what it's going to be like, what you're going to see. So that can prepare you psychologically for when you walk in on the day of the funeral and you're not so overwhelmed.
1: As a family, first of all, do you counsel each other a lot? And also your two other siblings, Natasha and Benjamin, have they got anything to do with psychotherapy?
2: Um, We don't cancel each other. I think we talk a lot to each other. We have a very active family WhatsApp. And then Natasha and Benj, they are... I guess, um, you know, everyone in our family knows about therapy. I guess the language of therapy is very common, but I think, no, they wouldn't want to sort of come on our podcast, I think it's fair to say.
0: That was exactly the question I was going to ask. It just shows Charlotte and I are on the same wavelength. You know, mm. your poor siblings are completely left out of this psychotherapy loving.
3: They don't feel excluded. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're in very different well,
0: I was going to ask, well, what Christmas was like? Because obviously, uh, you know, it's freighted with meaning when Julia opens the door and says, "How are you?" Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> no, we all sit around in a circle,
2: <laughs> and then we have a listening stick that we take it in turns. <laughs> no, it's like the same as every other Christmas, where like somebody cries, somebody mum burns the turkey, uh, everyone eats too much food and falls asleep in front of the telly. <laughs>
3: <laughs> With a few nice moments. Yes, and lovely moments.
2: Yeah, sorry, sorry. And lovely moments.
3: And some lovely moments.
2: But you
1: are a very functional family. I mean, you can tell on your podcast that you do seriously get on incredibly well. And if you have a comment, no one's getting offended by some positive feedback. You know what I, mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's so easy in families. You say one thing, what do you mean? What do you mean? And you can get, especially around Christmas time when things are a bit fraught, people can get very upset by the slightest comment about his shirt
4: or something. I don't want anyone to think that we don't have those moments where we snap <laughs> each other or walk on eggshells around each other or we haven't had phases in life where we haven't got on with each other.
3: Because we've had all of those things. And where I've been unbelievably annoying and got it wrong. And said terrible annoying. things. <laughs> yeah. And said terrible. I think one of them came out in the podcast. One of the terrible, one of the many terrible things I've said in my time.
1: Which was what? Yeah. Oh, I'm well, TED talks. Cool. <laughs> Luckily, I not She wanted me to remind you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Go on,
3: go on, remind her. Like, go on. You don't need I it I on didn't... two podcasts. Then we fight like every family, but we we also make up after the fight and... We all annoy each other and we have quite a lot of fun.
1: Do you have a family rule for how to stop sulking and make it up very quickly? Do you have a method for doing that?
3: Walking and talking.
1: I've got incredibly dramatic daughters. Who do, Well, one of them is very dramatic. So he so does a lot of door slamming and storming mm-hmm. about. And I We've can, had
3: that, I have to say. I
1: can do that too. So we have a rule. You, you can do that in the house, but you never leave the house on a from A slam. I think that's <laughs> I a do, I, I,
2: think, I think in our family, we are all incredibly uncomfortable with the idea that someone else is not happy with them, like almost to a like weird, unhelpful degree, like to a degree, it's healthy to be like, okay, they're not okay. I can still be okay with them not being okay. So I think if anything we are like too much the other way of like, oh, I, I, I can't bear it that so-and-so is upset with me. And so then we sometimes try to make it up before we're actually, you know, sometimes you need a bit of time and you need a bit of space. And I think we're not always great at doing that because we just like want to make it better really fast.
3: No one enjoys confrontational fights, do they? I mean, some people are more argumentative than others. I, I mean, in Every Family Has a Story, in my kind of 12 Touchstones for the well-being of Family, what I talked about was to be able to fight productively. You know, where you love most, you fight most, you hurt most, you're going to make your biggest mistakes. And you, the big thing is rupture where you fight, but repair. So like your rule about don't leave the house on a door slam is like you come and repair. And sometimes the repair can take five minutes because someone's just lost it over nothing. But sometimes the repair can take, you're not really calm for two or three days. And Mm. I think what em um, and so are talking about is that i think modeled mainly by me is i always wanted to make it better too quickly <laughs> and you know that being calm enough and having a sort of openness to talk about what was really the fight about it probably wasn't the dishwasher or that the shirt was too small and you think i was fat or whatever it is <laughs> it's normally about something else and it's often about love and attention mm. um in a family and there's a kind of sense of not being seen as you are or being misunderstood or being hurt and that that what is what needs kind of repairing and understanding and then through that you can often feel closer I mean some of our biggest fights I think we've often felt closest afterwards actually although at the time they were pretty pretty bad
1: (laughs) Well, I think that's a wonderful way to start the new year, to listen to all of you talking. I mean, I've learned a lot just from listening to you. And you are wonderfully inspirational to listen to on your podcast. So um, thank you very much for coming on and talking to us all about it.
3: Thank you, Charlotte and Ed, very much for inviting us. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. Just before we go,
1: we wanted to alert you to the launch of Sound Unwrapped at London's King's Place. Sound Unwrapped is in its 15th edition and now putting on a whole load of performances that represent the merging of art and music. At King's Place, there's a newly installed DB soundscape with 19 loudspeakers, so the sound is guaranteed to be sensational as well as seriously immersive. Performances range from acoustic choral works to the sound of a 17th century viola de gamba rearranged with live electronics, and they kick off with something called moonbathing, which is an immersive spatial mix. The programme is hugely varied, so do visit their website to find out more at kingsplace.co.uk. Next week will be the 100th edition of Breakout Culture. So we're going to be celebrating by talking about hope and a new cultural way of spreading it around the world, kicking off with a very special message from no other than the Dalai Lama. So given we could all do with an uplifting and sustaining dose of optimism at this rather gloomy time of year... Don't fail to tune in.
0: That's almost all we've got time for this week. As usual, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com. You'll find the latest digital edition of the magazine there, as well as our sister podcast, House of Guest, Carol Annette, who talks to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. We love your feedback, so we want to hear from you. If there's something you'd like to hear us profiling, please leave a comment or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. See you next week.